Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man trying to stave off insanity by playing adventure game books. This episode we're tackling a game book from one of the big beasts of 1980s role-playing in the form of the Dungeons and Dragons endless quest book Raid on Nightmare Castle. This episode is brought to you by Simone Canola, I hope I've said that right, who generously supports my gibbering with her hard-earned cash. Thank you so much, Simone. Before we get stuck in, there's a small amount of Patreon housekeeping. Ray Otis kindly pointed out to me that I'd completely failed to put any sensible tiers on my Patreon page. I'm happy to say that's now been amended, which means that as well as the £5 and £10 tiers, there's now one, two or three pound tiers. So you can support me to whatever extent that my nonsense deserves. Uh, the bonus episodes will, in theory, be tied to the £5 a month or higher tiers, but any support you provide will go towards keeping this podcast running. And I'll probably do bonus episodes anyway, because I quite like doing them. So, Raid on Nightmare Castle is book 14 in the Endless Quest line of adventure game books, published by TSR in the early 1980s, and based on their popular Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. It's therefore, for me at least, an object of tremendous nostalgia, because old-school Dungeons & Dragons is where my role-playing habits started in the early 1990s. Raid on Nightmare Castle was written by Catherine Maguire and features internal illustrations by Jim Holloway, sure to be a familiar name to some of you, and an evocative cover by Jeff Easley. Raid on Nightmare Castle is much more of a novel than a game book. There's no combat or magic system, and the sections are considerably longer than you would expect in a fighting fantasy game book. This is much closer to the choose-your-own-adventure books that were so popular at the time, and my playthrough reflects that to a great extent. Regardless, I hope you enjoy this little tour round Nightmare Castle. In this book, you are Kyle, a human orphan who has been raised by elves. Though you appreciate your step-parents' kindness, you long to have the chance to prove yourself. I mean, it says kindness, but they have given you the name Kyle, which makes you sound like a brand of stain remover that's tough on even ground-in dirt. At this very minute, your thoughts are interrupted by the deep, echoing tones of the great gong in the village square. The gong can only mean that there is trouble brewing in the land. Can I have to get a trouble gong for the house? That seems like a useful thing to have. The great gong sounds, its deep tones reverberating in the village square. You drop your bow and hurry from archery class to the centre of town. It's trouble or good tidings. Why else would the elven prince Novoye Novoy Wow the names in this are really bad. Why else would the elven prince Novoye sound the gong? Your friend Edas stumbles into you in his hurry. What do you think it is, Kyle? I have no idea, you reply, but I did see some travellers near the archery field. Oh, I saw them hours ago, Edos says, laughing. Then he sobers, seeing your hurt look. I'm sorry, Kyle, but you know you can't see as well as we elves can. Don't have to rub it in. Your reply is cut short as the gong sounds again. 
Rising fourteen feet high, the gong is a flawless, clear crystal. It rests on a marble base. The crystal is pentagon-shaped, faceted to send rainbows around the plaza. The base is so highly polished that you can see every detail of your reflection. Your freckles and carrot-red hair stand out among the blonde and white-haired elven folk of... Oh, another name. Kilisan or Silisan? I'll go with Kilisan. The slender limbs and thin features around you contrast sharply with your square jaw and broad chest. See, this is kind of amusing because when I was like 14 years old, I did in fact have carrot red hair and freckles. So I already feel quite warmly towards this book because they have described me fairly accurately. Although I did have a very skinny face at the age 14. Although strong, you lack the agility and speed of the elves, and you're reminded of this almost daily when Edas, who is your age but a head taller, wins every race against you. As you glance over at the other 13-year-old, the crowd quiets suddenly, and the voice of Prince Navoye rings out across the plaza. There is a picture which shows Prince Navoye standing in front of the big crystal gong, and he's got that kind of elfy mullet that really tells us that this was written in 1983. He's a big mullety man, as are many of the observers. Oh, good lord. Okay, we've got a double page of text, and it would appear quite a few more pages of text before we actually get to make a choice. So, strap in, this could be a little while. Also, the eagle-eared amongst you, is that a thing? May be able to detect an angry cat. I just would like it to be put on record at this point that he does have plenty of food in his food bowl. We put it down less than half an hour ago. It's fine. He's just being a nuisance. So Prince Navoye speaks. My dear friends, we have had news from the north from our kin in the Sotho Mountains. Great tragedy has befallen them. The evil warlord Oh, is another name. Rawlis of Gothrab has captured their ruler, our brother Estragon. Which sounds like a hormone replacement therapy product. A gasp of horror rises from the elves, and Edda says in a choked whisper, Estragon is the wisest among elves. He led the great council of peace ten years ago. You nod. You remember as a child seeing him briefly, and you recall the respect that he commanded. Hang on, aren't we supposed to be like 13 or 14? So we remember him from the age of three? Okay, good memory. Even humans revere Estragon, whose reign has ensured harmony between elves and men for centuries. We have reason to believe that he is still alive, Navoye continues. The elves sigh with relief. Rawlis is demanding a huge ransom. Money and elven weapons for Estragon's release. We do not trust Rawlis to keep his promise to release our brother after we pay. And we have sworn never to let elven magic fall into evil hands. Therefore, we have decided to send our great hero, Kanos, on a quest to rescue Estragon and destroy the evil warlord forever. Come on. Edas says. Let's see who's going with him. You race off to the manor of the renowned Kanos, Edda's father. 
Although you've lived with them for almost seven years, you still haven't overcome your awe of the great elven magician. His stern manner and the exacting tasks he assigns make you nervous around him. He's a fair and wise teacher, but you're never really sure of his approval. At the entrance to the great hall you stop. The tall, grey-haired Kanos is listening to a stout elf with blonde hair. Uh, huge props for including all body types in their description of the elves. There's a terrible tendency for elves to be universally tall and skinny, and beauty comes in many shapes and forms, and I appreciate that this book recognises that. Respectfully, I must point out that a large group will be quickly spotted, the stout elf is saying. Oh, I need to do another voice. Uh, oh. True, Nyasa, Kanos replies. I will take only as many as needed. Oh no, Edus gasps. That means he'll never take us. The warlord Rawless, Kanos continues, is an evil man, but not stupid. He realises the value of keeping Estragon alive and well. We should have time to get to the castle before... Then he interrupts himself. How was he captured? Literally doesn't tell me who's speaking, so I don't know what voice to do. And I can't remember what voice I did. I will go with with Nyasa. Let's go with Nyasa. He was travelling with his men through the Sotho Pass when Rawless ambushed him. We think Salegarth the Sorcerer was helping, and Estragon is no magician. That's very true, Canis says, then frowns. No wonder Rawless is able to do such mischief. Salegarth was powerful years ago, but I hadn't heard about him for a long time. Ever since he and Rawlis kidnapped King Urlar, our ally, we've had nothing but trouble from that area. So much so that the place is now called Nightmare Castle, Nyasa complains. The prince would like you to win back the castle from Rawlis if you can. I will make every effort. But rescuing Estragon is the first priority, Kanos says. It is a shame that Urlar died and no one knows what happened to Queen Elisa. Edas races to his father, dragging you behind him. Father, can we attend you on this quest? He pants, sliding to a halt before the grey-cloaked Kanos, staring down at the two of you, his clear grey eyes thoughtful. The magician frowns. Nyasa, minister to the prince, taps his foot impatient at being interrupted. You quiver. This quest is what you've been dreaming of. Finally, Kanos speaks. Edas, my son, despite your youth, you have been of great service to me. It is customary for an elf to wait until one is at least fifty before going on an adventure. However, I will ask the prince to grant an exception in your case. Huzzah! Edas skips around you. Do not make me regret my decision, son. Kanos warns. Edda settles down immediately. What about Kyle? he asks, suddenly sober. Kanos glances at you and shakes his head gently. It is but seven years since we saved him from the wreck of the Noyal in Antilia Harbour. Kyle's dying father gave him over to my care, and I cannot risk his life needlessly. Really is throwing an awful lot of very silly names at us. You sag in despair. 
Seven years might be nothing to a thousand-year-old Kanos, but that's over half your life so far. Surely you can be as useful as Edas. Feelings overcome your respectful silence. Trey Kanos, I know I'm a human and limited, but I am still a cleric and I've learned some of your magic besides. Kanos smiles kindly. Your clerical training ended when you were six, and we have only been able to teach you a few simple smells. Sorry, cleric training ended when I was six. Oh, I see. So the cleric training ended when, yeah, when we were saved by the elves from the wreck. Oh, I'm really confused by this already. So we were six when we were rescued. We're now 13. So yes, we've had what, at most two years of incredibly, presumably remedial cleric training? What do they teach between the ages of four and six that's going to be of actual practical value in an adventure? I, that is concerning. Oh well, on we go. Oh, some more important plot from Canos. The amulet that your father passed on to you is powerful, to be sure, but you do not know all of its power. Your father was the great Djibouti. That's literally a place. I mean, I guess it's Djibouti, but it looks like Djibouti. Your father was the great Djibouti, a patriarch known and respected by all, and you must give yourself time to follow in his footsteps. With a wave, he dismisses you and turns back to the minister. I will take only Edis, he says, walking away, and I will leave my assistant, Jadis, in charge. That evening, bitter, you watch Edis pack to leave. On his bed, he piles the clothes and maps he intends to take. He places his magic sword beside his pack on the bed, saying, We had planned to draw our weapons together. I will sorely miss having you beside me. It's not fair, you cry, holding your own elven staff tightly and blinking back tears. My magic is as strong as yours and my arms are stronger. But I have to stay here with the children. It's not fair. Edas slowly folds a cloak into his bag. It's true, you are as good with your staff as I am with my sword. Perhaps father is worried that you might forget your magic abilities during the crush of battle. I've trained with my amulet until he was satisfied, you say angrily. I've practised with the duel of Kaibak until I can set two dogs to fighting. Why would you teach someone to make dogs fight? Are the elves betting on dog fights? Ah, oh, that is bleak. Dogs are not orcs or goblins, Edas replies, putting his hand on your shoulder. You jerk away, still upset. We are taking the jewel with us, but even I won't use it unless Kanos is unable to. It's not called the jewel of confusion for nothing, you know. If either of us should make a mistake while using it, we would scramble our own brains instead of confusing our enemies. It can only be used safely in a calm state of mind, and which of us could be calm while risking such danger? So the jewel of Kaibak is also the jewel of confusion, I see. You look sharply at Edas. And what about our training and intuition? Kanos said last week I was getting to be as good as you. Yes, he said that. For a human, you have superior intuition, Edas agrees. 
but you still can't hear or see as well as elves can, nor can you detect evil as well. Minor points, you mutter, sinking into a chair. And I still think you need more than two elves to fight a whole castle. So do I, to be fair. But it wouldn't be much of an adventure if a massive army of elves laid siege to a castle for two years, gradually starving them into submission. That would be quite a dull adventure game book, but one I do kind of want to write. Edas stares at his feet, not wanting to make it worse by showing his excitement. Would you like me to leave Greypaw behind? He asks, nodding towards the sleek white whippet sleeping on the bed. At his name, the dog raises his head. Oh, no, you don't, Greypaw says firmly in a voice Canos magically gave to him. I'm not giving up this chance at adventures of babysit some human. So many characters. Changing the subject quickly, you ask. Isn't your father getting too old for adventures? His last quest was more than 400 years ago. Edas shrugs. When the great prince asks, you go. Besides, we're taking the jewel and my sword that glows whenever danger is near. We'll be well prepared to handle anything that tries to sneak up on us. Your gloom deepening, you mumble. I think I'd better go to bed. Have a good trip, Edas, and come back a hero. Smiling weakly, you add. Try not to get killed. That would destroy the power in your sword, and why spoil a good sword? Aren't you going to see us off tomorrow, he asks. You shake your head. It would be too humiliating. I'll see you when you return. Realising you may never see him again, you shake his hand quickly and leave. Wow, it's a, an emotional parting. There really is a lot going on in these opening pages. We haven't yet got to make a decision, but already I'm somehow very confused. We've got multiple magics. I'm okay at fighting with a staff. There's a jewel of confusion, elven magician, magic dog, magic sword. I'm trying to keep this all in my head because I feel as though there will be questions asked later. Oh, good lord. Entering your room, still absorbed in your struggle to accept Canos' decision, you absently greet your hawk tailspin. The hawk cocks his head, regarding you quizzically, then suddenly starts soaring around the room upside down, a trick that usually makes you laugh. You strain to concentrate on his antics and try hard to smile. So, magic dog and magic hawk. Okay. Tailspin! I remember when you and I escaped from the Noil. Your tail feathers were so badly singed you couldn't fly straight. As I remember, you didn't look so good yourself. The hawk sniffs, settling as always on your shoulder. You smile, pleased as always that Canos also gave your pet the ability to speak. Trying to relax, you reach for the sacred amulet. Okay, no, there are two amulets. Holding it in both hands, you clear your mind. The deep green jewel, carved in an owl's shape, glows with a warm light. You struggle to follow the path of the light to inner calm. Gradually, the pains of the world subside, and only a grey fog swirls in your mind. After a moment, the image of a lone rider appears, moving through the fog that soon takes the shape of harsh grey mountains. In a flash of insight, you recognise yourself. The vision disappears and you open your eyes, smiling. Why not? 
you think. I can follow them until they let me come with them. You must, you will disobey Canos. And 15 pages in, we are given our very first choice. Do you want to follow Canos and Edas, or just stay at home? I'm guessing if we stay at home, the adventure's over. So I think we will follow Canos and Edas in the hope of having some kind of adventure at some point. I still think you're going to be in big trouble. Your hawk's voice is harsh with worry. Listen, Tailspin, if I'd have stayed at home, I'd be of no use to anyone. This way at least I can still help Canos and Edis. The black hawk on your shoulder flaps his wings angrily, ruffling your hair. It's all very well for you, Master Kyle, but Canos is liable to turn me into a mouse. I'll be eaten by my own people. You chuckle softly and slowly rein in your horse. Grasping your staff securely, you feel for the amulet safely hidden under your shirt in a green silk bag hanging from a gold cord around your neck. The staff and amulet are the only weapons you carry, but you feel confident that they're enough. Gazing around, you stretch your tired arms. We should be nearing the pass of Liedris, you tell Tailspin. The road gets rocky after that, according to elven maps. I wonder if Canos and Edis have gotten that far. After two days of following the caravan, you're not even sure how far ahead they are. The long grasses of the valley have given way to the brown scrub brush of the low hills. This is orc territory, and you're on the alert for roving bands of marauders. As a lone rider, you would make a good target. A chill wind sweeps down from the mountains ahead of you, and you shiver. The sun ducks in and out of the clouds as you search for signs of the elves' passage. Darn those elven eyes! If they couldn't see so far, I could keep a closer tail on Edas. Do you want me to fly ahead? No, it'd be just our luck that they'd recognise you. That insolent Greypaw certainly would. He's had it in for me for a long time. You're lucky to have. Suddenly, the clash of steel on steel rings thinly through the still morning air. Your horse shies and you struggle to hold it down. Faint cries and shouts echo up from beyond the next hill, but you see nothing disturbing the peaceful scenery. Tailspin! There's a fight! I'd better go and help. What if it's not Canos, but just some orcs fighting the natives? Yes, because the natives deserve to die. There is a picture showing the horse, me, and Tailspin. And Tailspin is sat on my shoulder with its wings spread. And uh, oh, Tailspin looks great. I look fine. A bit aggravating. The horse just looks kind of placid as though he's had to put up with an awful lot of silliness. So do we want to decide it's not our friends and keep out of the fight? Or do you want to decide it's the elves and ride forward to help? Well, I'm going to try and play this properly heroically. So I think I'm going to ride forward to help. Even if it's not the elves, I might be able to do something. We travelled a long way just to help Canos and Edda, so we're not going to risk failing them now, you tell the hawk. Spurring your horse on, you race towards the sound of battle. It takes nearly an hour of hard galloping to reach the pass of Liedris, where a small army of orcs have beset the party. From the sides of the pass, more orcs are pouring through to reinforce their ranks. Almost as though 
two people wandering off into enemy territory to assault a castle was a terrible plan. With a yell, you ride into the battle. Swinging your staff fiercely, you finally reach Edas, who is pinned against the wall by ten orcs. Hold on, you shout. I'm right here. Kyle! Your friend gasps, desperately striking at the wild horde around him. Where did you come from? There's a picture of Edas trying to fight off the orcs and... The expression that he's wearing is very much one of mild perturbation rather than I am about to die. He sort of looks like a character from the Beano who's just been caught with his fingers in the sweetie jar. We said we were going to raise our weapons together, didn't we? You yell happily, but a new group of orcs keeps you from saying more. You do your best to rescue Edas, but more of the evil creatures push you away, and soon you are also surrounded. Fainting and blocking with your staff, you manage to avoid the roughest blows. You realise that the orcs are not fighting as fiercely as they could be, since several have missed easy chances to stab you. You wonder if they have orders not to kill you, but as you are knocked down, you decide that they want to give you a few good whacks anyway. Struggling to your feet, you see Kanos off to your left. Blood is seeping from his left arm and he is being held by two tall orcs carrying heavy wooden clubs. This is another long descriptive passage. Canos, don't give up! I'll be right there! You cry, but he gives no sound of hearing. Suddenly, Greypaw leaps at one of the orc guards, snarling and biting. A swift blow with a thick club knocks the dog aside and the orcs pull a strangely quiet Canos away. Tailspin flies into Canos's face, calling, Wake up, great Canos! But the elf shows no recognition. A sharp knock on the head sends you down to the ground, dazed. By the time your vision clears, Edas is surrendering. He drops his sword to the ground and raises his hands. Quick as a flash, Greypaw grabs the sword and runs off before the orcs can react. Screaming, a couple run after him. Run, Greypaw! Edas yells as the orcs roughly tie his hands against his sides. After a minute, the two orcs come back empty-handed. Greypaw has escaped, but you and your friends are prisoners. So, old man and two teenagers versus literal orc army does not go well. Shocker. The orcs make you stand up, and then they bind you tightly. They check you for valuables, but in their haste they miss the amulet. They leave you the small bag on your belt, which only carries flint for making fires. We'll bring them in alive, the orc leader warns. You have your orders. See, most people would characterise orcs with uh, a very working class way of speaking, but I think orcs are more like conservative MPs. So that's the sort of vibe I'm going for with them. Cursing yourself... For being of no use to your friends, you are led away with them. You notice that the orcs have not taken the flint on the elves' belt either, and you hope the jewel of Kaibak is safely hidden in Kanos's bag. The only good news is that the orcs have left your staff behind, thinking it is an ordinary stick. Now if only Tailspin will see it and pick it up. You march over the rough road, pushed and poked by your sneering captors. Exactly like Conservative MPs. Kanos is up the front and Edes is close behind you. Amidst the orcs' raucous laughter, 
Edus's low tones go unnoticed except by you. Canos was unable to speak or move his arms. There must be a powerful magician working with the orcs, Edas tells you. I'm afraid it might be the evil sorcerer, Micros, the demon. He's supposed to be in the east, but I know of no other who could affect Canos this way. I fear all is lost. Maybe not, you whisper, trying desperately to think of some way to help your friends and yourself. For three days you are shoved and prodded along the road. The orcs are in a hurry and you are harried mercilessly. They occasionally toss small bits of meat at you for meals, but you are afraid to eat it, not sure whose flesh it might be. The animals have disappeared, but Edas whispers that he's sure he's seen Tailspin hovering not far away and that he's holding your staff. Your relief at your friend's safety helps you to keep going. The road crests the top of a hill and starts down, making the going a bit easier. Finally, you arrive at the orc's stronghold, a cave hidden within a clump of trees. The horses are led to another cave not far away. After stumbling along dark tunnels, you are untied and shoved into a small dungeon. But your captors drag Edas and Kanos away, alone. Miserable, you stand in the middle of the dungeon, afraid to touch anything. The walls are slick with dripping water, and you can barely see your hand in front of your face. One of the orcs appears at the door, threatening you with a large axe. You struggle to appear calm, but you shiver in fear, waiting to be killed at any moment. Don't hurt him, the chief orc says, laughing. Leave him here. He is of no use to us, but the elves are to be brought to the master. The sound of their footsteps fades down the tunnel. Separated from your friends, you sit down, not touching the walls, exhausted and hungry. Maybe Canos was right. Tailspin and Greypaw were more help than you were. Blink back tears as you try and think of some way to save your friends. As confused and depressed thoughts pour into your mind, you fall into an uneasy sleep. It's worrying how much, like me... This character is in some ways, because confused and depressing thoughts are pretty much what pour into my mind before I go to sleep. And also, I would be less use than a whippet in a fight. Uh, I should note that we don't get a chance to make a choice here. So after a full four pages, uh, we just get shunted on to the next page. An odd rustling sound snaps you awake. This is no time to be sleeping, a familiar voice whispers. Tailspin, how did you find me? He didn't. I sniffed you out. He'd have been lost without me. Greypaw's voice floats out of the darkness. Wait a minute. Who kept bumping into the walls? Stop it, you two. This is no time for feuds. You've got to find a way to get me out of here. I stole the keys from the guard's table and he didn't even notice me, Greypaw says. Thank you. Now, now, give me the keys. We also brought your staff. We figured you'd need it, Greypaw says. By the way, it looks like Micros the Demon is behind all of this trouble. As I waited at the entrance to the cave, I heard the orcs mention him. I supposed something like that was the case, you say. Canos would never be overcome by a few orcs. Even more interesting... Greypaw says, is that Micro seems to be in league with Rawless. 
the orcs were talking about his trips to the big castle in the mountains that's got to be nightmare castle then we really have to get out of here fast you say no telling what micros intends to do with us Graypaw leads the way down the pitch black tunnel now is your chance to show canos that he needs you excitement churns in your stomach as you search for an idea any idea but since you have no notion of what to expect nothing comes to mind after what seems like forever you reach a half-open door and peer around it into a room well lit with torches edas and canos are chained to the wall in an alcove canos's left arm has been bound with a white cloth he looks as if he's been asleep and edas is struggling to keep his eyes open that's more than mere exhaustion you decide it must be a very strong sleep spell that holds them there is a door in the opposite wall of the room and through it you can hear orcs laughing and talking a small lamp burns on a table in the big room and chains of various sizes hang empty on each wall silently you creep into the alcove motioning the animals to stay behind kyle edas whispers they'll be back soon you must get back to the village canos half awakens and shakes his head his eyes full of pain don't think he agrees with you you tell adas canos lowers his head and stares at his belt think he wants you to take the jewel of kai back edas whispers C can you use it on micros you slip the jewel from the bag on canos's belt the ruby blood red is set in a twisted gold armband and surrounded by ice blue gems the beauty of it is quite deceptive it is a powerful magical item that properly used can cause one's enemies to turn and fight one another but it can be very dangerous in the hands of a novice both you and edas have trained with it but you are always a little afraid and he is better than you do you dare use it like these orcs searching skills leave a great deal to be desired as they've managed to fail to notice the two clearly valuable gems on two separate people edas sees your conflict and says gently i too would be afraid to use the jewel if, if you cannot i won't blame you save estragon canos gasps fighting against the spell that saps his power edas glances over at his father then back at you he wants you to rescue estragon there's no time to lose he says but i can't leave you here you cry softly you must edas replies and you can't fight micros with only your staff but graypaw says micros is working with rawless you say worriedly even more reason to go edas gasps his resistance to the spell weakening with us captured rawless won't expect someone to try to rescue estragon you look at the elf you have come to respect through the years since he rescued you and you know that you can't do less than he expects of you once again we are being instructed to go straight to another page so isn't so much a uh, choose your own adventure as a novel if canis trusts me to save estragon then i can't ignore his wishes i'll go but only because he insists i promise i'll be back to rescue you edas no matter what you say gripping your friend's arm you place the jewel securely in the bag hanging from your belt i'll go you out of here but i'm staying with my master graypaw says which is an enormous relief because i inadvertently chose in a voice that was very difficult to do 
Who needs you? We'll find our own way out. Tailspin squawks at him. Quiet, both of you, you snap. With one last look at Edas, you hurry back down the dark tunnel, holding a torch that you grab from a bracket. Suddenly, the tunnel branches into three parts. Which one leads to the outside? I can smell something strange in the left tunnel, Greypaw reports. But also fresh air. There's light at the end of the right tunnel, Tailspin says. I think we came in through the middle tunnel, but I'm not sure, you tell them. So, do you want to take the left, the right, or the middle tunnel? So, long-time listeners will know that when in doubt, I like to take the left turn. And in this case, that works out really nicely, because there was... A clue, I think, that Greypaw was going to guide us out and he's suggesting that we're going to take the left-hand tunnel. So my always go left whenever you get the first choice accords happily with what I really hope is a contextual clue uh, and not just a random bit of writing. To be fair, this book's tendency to randomly insert exposition in a very counterintuitive order doesn't fill me with tremendous confidence. But we'll see how we get on. I'm just I'm just thrilled to be making a choice, quite honestly. A little smell can't hurt us, you say, and the air must mean we can get outside. Waving the animals ahead of you, you tiptoe down the left tunnel. Soon you get a whiff of the strange smell. It reminds you of fungus and mouldy wood. Phew, you whisper. I hope we don't run into a giant mushroom. Worse than that, Greypaw yelps. Hitch! His voice is cut off suddenly. You move forward with the torch and stare into the hairy face of a giant spider. Behind it, a huge web fills the tunnel. Greypaw, like an oversized fly, is struggling in the sticky strands. The spider quickly weaves a cocoon around Greypaw's body. Before you can believe your eyes, the spider has attached the white bundle that was Greypaw to the wall. He's right. It's worse, you moan. Poor Greypaw. Saddened and angry, you thrust your flaming torch at the spider. Instantly, it whips a sticky white strand around the torch and pulls it from your grasp. Go for help! You yell at Tailspin, striking at the spider with your staff. The spider leaps away, then darts around you, laying strands of web on your shoulders and arms. When you try to fight, the sticky fibres cling to your staff, and soon you too are wrapped in a thick white blanket. As the spider attaches your cocoon to the wall, you hope that Tailspin can find help quickly. Otherwise, this is the end. It turns out the dog's an idiot. Who saw that coming? Lovely, creepy illustration of the spider, complete with myself being tied up in spider silk. That's pretty cool. I am going to invoke the sausage-fingered bookmark rule, and we will go back to the previous section where we will attempt to take a different choice and hope that it doesn't lead arbitrarily to an instant death. But uh, at least it was definitely a meaningful choice because one of those options was literally fatal. So let's have a little rewind time. Should I start doing a rewind time effect? No, that would make me sound like even more of a buffoon than I already do. We had three choices. Uh, left, which is spiders. Uh, right, where... Tailspin says there's light at the end of the tunnel. 
or the center, which is where I thought we came through. Now, I don't really trust myself because I frequently can't remember what voice I used for characters two minutes on from when I've done it. So I think we'll, we'll try following Tailspin and go for the light at the end of the tunnel. A light means it's not far to the outside, you say. That is, if it's daylight, I've lost track of time. Let's try the tunnel on the right. You edge towards the light, hoping your boots crunching on the gravel can't be heard by anyone. Graypaw and Tailspin stay behind you. The tunnel is not long and the light gets brighter as you near the end. A light is coming from underneath a door. You hear the murmur of many voices. Holding your breath, you ease the door open and peer in. It is a large room lit with many torches and it's full of orcs. Many are sitting but some are walking around, talking and arguing. Finally, one orc leaps onto a table and motions for silence. Listen, you bums, he begins. You shut the door quickly and hurry back the way you came. This is not the right tunnel. So, we've learned something. We've learned that both the animals are idiots. So, we're going to take the middle tunnel. So, meaningful choice. Less meaningful than I was perhaps hoping. The middle tunnel looks slightly familiar. You say, let's take it. Creeping through puddles of stagnant water, you can hear your own breathing and you hope no one else can. Graypaw slinks warily ahead of you and Tailspin brings up the rear. Finally, you can feel a fresh breeze blowing in. They're almost out, you whisper. Then you won't be needing me, Graypaw answers. I'll be waiting with my master for your return, Kyle. Remember your promise. So glad not to be having to do that voice anymore. It is murder on my vocal cords. I'll be back as soon as I can get help, you reply. You can count on that. It's a clear night as you emerge from the cave's entrance. Telling Tailspin to look for your horse among the others, you creep quietly through the bushes concealing the cave. No guards are in sight, and you breathe a sigh of relief. Tailspin returns to say your horse is nearby, in a field right next to the cave. It looks as if you found the only patch of decent grass around here, Tailspin says. Moving quickly but quietly, you mount the horse. You know the Sotho Mountains and Nightmare Castle are north of here, so you point your horse in that direction, using a special star as a guide. You ride across the field and down into a valley, your heart racing as you wonder what lies ahead. In the light of the crescent moon, you can see fairly well. The lush grass and the white meadow flowers are beautiful, but many patches of burned ground and withered foliage give evidence of the orc's destructive passing. No animals or birds can be seen and you suspect that they have fled or been killed. After a time, the desolate patches grow fewer, and you feel grateful to be even this far removed from danger from the orcs. It's late evening of the second day before you see any signs of civilization. A small town appears in the distance, and you halt as Tailspin flies ahead to check it out. Tiny weathered cottages are scattered across the flat land between the mountains. What do you think? you ask the hawk when he returns from his check. Is it safe here? It's far enough from the orcs, if that's what you mean, Tailspin replies. I saw a church down the road. You might ask directions there. Maybe they'll have a place to stay, too. We could both use a rest, he says wearily. 
Good idea, you say, spurring your horse on. You arrive at the little church at dusk, and a small, thin man appears at the door. His faded brown robes reveal him to be a practising cleric, and his squinty eyes attest to long hours of reading. The church itself seems to be in bad repair, with flaking whitewash and dirty windows. But the cleric doesn't look like he has the strength to do heavy cleaning, or indeed the money to pay someone else to do it. You wonder what kind of guidance he can give this little town. But then you remember the orcs. Probably keep him to warn them of danger, you whisper to Tailspin, who's now perched on your staff. William Alfred, the cleric says, welcome to North Fork. Will you share me supper? You accept, eager for some hot food. After stabling your horse, he leads you through a long one-storey house, almost empty of furniture, but full of dust. A hall ends in a small, dark kitchen. Eyeing the pot on the dirty hearth, doubtfully, you remove your cloak and ease yourself into a rickety chair in the corner. Tailspin perches on the top of the back door and promptly closes his eyes. What brings you to our little village? Alfred asks, watching you very intently. Uncomfortable under his scrutiny, you say quickly, We were just travelling in the mountains. You wonder why you don't tell him everything. It occurs to you that he might be able to help free your companions, but you keep silent. I've heard the mountains are dangerous, he says, still watching you, shrugging you nibble at the bread he offers. Yes, some say it's a good idea to travel armed in the highlands, he continues, moving quickly to prepare a supper of stewed red meat and vegetables that you don't have the courage to refuse. While eating, he encourages you to tell him more about your journey. You pick at the greasy food, eating as little as possible without appearing rude. Alfred doesn't seem to notice. Like, we don't have any supplies. We've been travelling for two days, basically without eating. And apparently, we're too good for his stew. Alfred doesn't seem to notice. He explains that he doesn't get much news in this place. He does hang on your every word, you think, as you try and construct a story that doesn't tell too much. After supper, the cleric excuses himself to lock up the church. I'll find you some place to sleep for the night when I return, he says. The moment he's gone, Tailspin's eyes pop open. Let's get out of here, he says. Why, what's the matter? Our friend isn't saying all he knows, the bird replies. My bet is that we don't last through the night. Don't be ridiculous, you scoff. He's just lonely for company. Besides, it's starting to rain. We have a better chance against the rain than against him, the hawk says. Come on, Master Kyle, please. Do you want to sleep at the cleric's house, or would you rather leave? Well... He does seem a shifty and suspicious sort. Now, if I was role-playing strictly according to the character that's been presented, I should decide to stay at the cleric's house, because clearly I'm scoffing at the idea that there's anything wrong with the cleric. Yet at the same time, I know as the player that I should probably take a powder. So I'm actually going to let discretion be the better part of valour, and I'm going to leave. Perhaps you're right, he does seem a bit strange, you say to Tailspin. Reluctantly, you gather up your cloak. You sneak out the back door with the hawk close behind you and retrieve your horse from the stable. Silently, you ride through the drizzle looking for a dry place to sleep. 
Most of the cottages are dark and you hesitate to disturb the occupants, any of whom might be in league with Alfred. When you are soaked to the skin, Tailspin points out a large grey barn set back from the road. Tying your horse out of sight and grabbing your pack, you creep in and look around. The ground floor is swept clean, but a ladder leads to a large loft filled with hay. Removing your wet clothing, you spread it out and pull some dry things from your pack. Apparently the orcs also left you. Do they even know how to rummage through someone's possessions? Tailspin flies up to a thick wooden beam above you and settles down to sleep. You fashion yourself a bed and are about to fade off when a sneeze breaks the silence. Grabbing your staff, you cry, Who's there? For a moment, there is silence, and a small man emerges from the hay. Looking more closely, you see that he's a halfling. Reddish hair like yours sticks up all over his head, and he's dressed in long underwear. He's trying to look fierce, but you know he's scared. His arm trembles as he grips a small dagger, and there's sweat on his face even though it's a cool night. If you mean me harm, I will defend myself, he threatens, but I only want to get a good night's sleep. Believing him, you decide he's no danger to you and beckon him closer. Who are you? Where are you from? You ask gently. With reluctance, he answers. I'm Borma. We come from a castle in the Sothal Mountains. We ran away. That's where I'm going, you say. Are you crazy? He cries. You'll only get yourself killed. Probably will, you admit. But I have to do it anyway. Briefly, you explain your quest. You must be careful of the warlord Rawless, he cautions. Although he himself is not a magician, he has the evil sorcerer Salagarth working for him. Salagarth? Oh yeah, no, Salagarth is one of the other sorcerers. Who's the other sorcerer? I've forgotten who the other sorcerer is. Micros. Sounds like an off-brand operating system. Yes, so Sally Garth and Micros. We have multiple sorcerers in this story. You spend much of the night listening to Borma. Tailspin listens sleepily from his perch on the beam as the halfling reveals some of the dangers within the castle, which he also calls Nightmare Castle. He explains a hidden doorway on the side of the castle and gives you the key which he stole to escape. He cautions you that the sorcerer has a spell on the room Estragon is in, causing it to move around from time to time. Oh, that's kind of cool. I cannot imagine for a second that this will deliver on it, but a dungeon that moves from place to place is a great idea that I'm definitely going to steal the next time I'm designing one. Rorlis has taken great pains to make sure his hostage is not recaptured, he says. The room can appear in any one of five empty rooms throughout the castle. Takes a lot of energy to move it, apparently, because Sally Garth only does it once in a while. Is there any way I'll recognise it? Only the hard way, he replies, when you run into guards or booby traps. It's always protected by one or the other. I'll remember that, you promise. Rorlis doesn't have a lot of guards, Bulmer says, but Sally Garth has laid many traps for the unwary. Never rush into anything. He continues to give advice into the wee hours of the morning. The next day, tired but happy, you thank him and ride off. Two weeks of hard riding later, you're in the shadow of the great nightmare castle. 
The sight sends chills up and down your spine. The entrance to the castle is shaped like an enormous skull with an open mouth for the door, in a way that I assume is legally distinct from Castle Greyskull out of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. You shudder to think of walking through that mouth to get inside. Tailspin, perched before you on the horse's head, squawks, Oh, you've seen all I need to see. Let's go home. Shh, you warn him softly. I said I would try to rescue Estragon, and I will try. Reaching inside your shirt, you finger the bag holding your amulet, and you relax slightly. Feeling for the jewel of Kaibak in the bag on your belt, you wonder if you'll ever find the courage to use it. Pushing the thought from your mind, you begin your search for Estragon. The castle's black walls blend into the grey rock of the mountain, and the bridge leading to the main gate looks treacherous, especially after you discover that a large red dragon guards the main door. If Rawlis has a pet red dragon, I humbly submit that he doesn't really need a bunch of elven weapons. Like, that red dragon is worth an army all on its own. Still, apparently, he just needs to kidnap elves. On your guard for the soldiers that Bormer said might be around, you study the castle. Small windows dot the front wall, and a tower at the other end pokes into the clouds. A small field to the left holds several grazing horses. There seems to be no other entrance, but Bormer said that there was a hidden side door. So, you search the mountain cliff carefully. You finally discover a narrow ledge-like trail cut into the mountain, leading to the side of the castle. Following it, you reach a small wooden door. This must be the door that Bormer described, you say. He forgot to mention how small it was, Tailspin replies. And this is all one long thing, by the way. Like, I haven't skipped anything. This is just Bormer telling us how to get into the castle, and then rather than us having to remember how to get into the castle, we go there and the story tells us that we remember how to get into the castle. You decide to leave all your supplies on the horse, figuring you won't be in the castle very long but you bring your staff, the amulet, and the jewel. Using Bormer's key, you unlock the door and walk, stooping through the four-foot-high tunnel, with tailspin following. Soon the ceiling rises to six feet high, enough for you to stand. It's this a six-foot-by-six-foot six stone corridor. That's a dungeon classic. I guess we can assume that whatever uses this route is pretty harmless, you whisper. Oh, I don't know. A four-foot-wide snake would be rather nasty, Tailspin replies. You shudder at the thought. The hall leads to a large room filled with books and old furniture. A large table fills the centre of the room. A large slate fireplace has unburned wood stacked in it, but the lamps are empty. The only light comes from an open window to your right. Dust lies thick on everything. We won't find Estragon in here, you comment, heading for the door in the opposite wall. You step cautiously out into another hall, springing back inside the room when you see a halfling walking towards you. You half-close the door and peek out, watching the halfling. doesn't appear to have seen you. You're not sure what to do. If you hide, you might miss a chance to get valuable information. 
But if you show yourself and the halfling alerts the guards, you'll be in deep trouble. The halfling is nearing your room. You have to make a decision fast. Do you want to hide in the room or talk to the halfling? I like that it's given us potential outcomes of both. That sort of makes sense. Raises the stakes a bit. Uh, let's try and talk to the halfling. It's another chance for me to do a rural accent, which I'm sure you're all very much looking forward to. That halfling might know where Istragon is, you whisper as you peer through the half-closed door. And if he's as unhappy as Bulma, he might tell us. Waiting until the halfling enters, you slip behind him and close the door. He whirls around, frightened. Who are you? He croaks hoarsely. Oh, sorry. Who are you? He croaks hoarsely. Motioning him to be quiet, you hold up a key. A halfling who once worked here. His name's Bormer, gave this to me. I know him, the halfling exclaims. I'm glad to help any friend of his. My name is Sim, and I'm at your service. Sim. Almost like Sam. I wonder if there's ever been a famous halfling called Sam. Do you know where the elf Estragon is, you ask? He shakes his head regretfully. Then he brightens. But I do know that Master Rawless keeps his most prized possession, a magic potion, in a tower on the castle's north side. How good is a magic potion, you ask, disappointed. Must have some worth. We wouldn't value it so highly, Sim replies. Now, you must leave, for the Master will be here any minute. Following his directions, you sneak down the hall, past several closed doors, then up two flights of tower steps. You pause at the landing to look around. The upstairs hall turns a corner ahead of you and there's an unlocked door to your right, which you open cautiously. Several brooms stand in the small closet, but nothing else. Must be around the corner, you say. Tailspin flies ahead, calling back. Looks like it's all clear. Oops. He scoots back as a loud barking echoes down the stairs. There's a door, all right, with a very large dog guarding it, he says. Sim forgot to mention him, you comment wryly. Probably some relative of that miserable Greypaw, the hawk grumbles. The barking stops, replaced by noisy sniffing. Don't know if I want the potion that much, you murmur. Is he chained? I didn't have time to look, Tailspin replies. With our luck, that dog would have magical powers. Do you want to try and get the potion or give up and look elsewhere for Estragon? I'm going to try and get the potion. If the potion is that well guarded, it must be worth having, you say thoughtfully. See if you can distract the dog. Tailspin flies warily off. A moment later, the hawk comes whizzing back around the corner, pursued by a huge dark wolfhound. As the two race past, you move swiftly around the corner to a large door with a handle but no lock. Rawless has put a lot of confidence in that dog, you think, pulling on a smooth iron latch. The door creaks open and you tiptoe in, watching for booby traps. The room is tiny, about five feet by seven feet, with one small window that gives little light. The stone walls are hung with large tapestries and several small tables are cluttered with knick-knacks. Trembling in your haste, you sort through the jumble of objects, not sure what you're looking for. Kanos kept all of his potions in clear vials, but there's no guarantee that the warlord does the same. 
a tiny green bottle catches your eye and you pick it up. The label reads, Potion of Power, drink me and be great. Do you want to drink the potion and fight the warlord or take it with you to use later? I feel like this adventure is in need of some serious adrenaline, so I'm going to knock that potion right back now. This potion is just what I need to fight Rawlis, you decide. You uncap the bottle and drink deeply. Nothing happens for a moment and you're disappointed. But you attempt to pick up the small table and discover it only takes one hand. I must be stronger, you cry. But strangely enough, the table is shrinking. Or is it? You glance around the room and discover that you're growing. Oh no, you cry. Great means big, not strong. Your voice booms out, rattling the windows. Within minutes, you are too big to get out of the door. You have to duck to avoid the ceiling, and your feet are knocking over the tables. Frightened, you tuck yourself into a ball with your face near the door. You watch as the wolfhound returns. It sniffs the open door, then catches sight of you. Yelping, it tucks its tail between its legs and streaks off. In a couple of minutes, Tailspin flies up the stairs, calling your name. You call back, but your gigantic voice sounds like an explosion. Tailspin alights and sees your enormous eye peering out the door. Ah! he cries. A monster's eaten Kyle, my poor master! Squawking, he flies away. Squeezed painfully into the cramped room, you hope the potion wears off before Rawlis comes to get it for himself. Perhaps he drank too much. The end. Okay, well, I think we will definitely finish at that point. There is an illustration which shows your big stupid face, or my big stupid face, I should say, staring out through a little door while a really nicely drawn eagle uh, looks alarmed and frightened which is really really nice that's quite a nice note to finish on i think i will be back in just a few moments with some closing thoughts well i think it's fair to say i wasn't massively impressed with raid on nightmare castle at least on a first playthrough but since recording that attempt i've actually had a couple more goes and I actually feel a little bit warmer to it than I did immediately following the recording when I felt quite deflated, if I'm honest. Firstly, I think we were a little unlucky on that playthrough to get a narrative with quite so little agency. Like, had we opted to avoid the battle with the orcs at the start, then we could have enjoyed quite a nice little rescue mission in the orc lair and then travelled with Kanos and Edas and had a really very different adventure through Nightmare Castle itself. So, as actually quite a bit of replayability in the book, perhaps more than in some of the fighting fantasy novels where one playthrough can sometimes show you the lion's share of the content. However, there's still big issues with how this book is constructed and the extent to which it doesn't want to allow you to influence the big plot beats. It's sort of like having an older friend or cousin or relative who takes the video game controller off you when you can't be trusted to do the difficult bits. That's sort of what it felt like to me. I mean, I ended up stuck in a room while swollen to enormous size, but if I had just taken the other option of hanging on to the potion, I'd have been suddenly ushered to a brief set piece with Rawlis and one of the good endings without making another choice. 
So the adventure was over, whichever decision I would have made, which kind of feels quite anticlimactic. Similarly, in one of the other versions of the castle, you get a choice between a door and a ladder. And if you choose the door, you're suddenly catapulted to another of the good endings without ever feeling like you made a decision that warranted such an outcome. And that whole ending is told to you all of the exciting stuff you have no control over. And it's frustrating because there's plenty of space for additional choices because so many of the sections are several pages long and frequently feel overly long and padded. The author could have cut out some of the talking eagle banter to make space to ask the reader what kind of approach they'd like to take to the final confrontation rather than just explaining what you do. It's not like he doesn't manage this from time to time either. You can decide whether to stay with the evil cleric and that feels like a suitably weighty decision but all too often the consequences of the choice you make feel very out of step with the apparent banality of the alternatives. I think this is a book which shows how much additional heft even a basic system like fighting fantasy can give to a story. I don't think a combat system is necessary to make a good game book but at the very least a basic inventory management system would go a long way to adding depth. We came across a halfling who gave us some information and a key to Nightmare Castle but instead of having to use that information to puzzle our way through the approach to the castle we're just told that we use it and that happens because when you don't have any system at all there's nowhere to store information except within the text which means that the author would have needed to write two very similar approaches to the castle where the only difference would have been that one version of the text, one set of options, remembered that you'd met a helpful halfling. And the more options you want to present in this kind of approach, the more stacking layers of almost duplicated material you have to provide. It's like multiple universes where everything is the same except for the fact that in one universe you have a key and in the other universe you don't. And of course if you want to add additional variables you vastly multiply the number of universes. Now the last bonus episode of the podcast where we covered the Doctor Who story, now that wasn't a tightly written game book by any stretch of the imagination, but it did offload at least a bit of work onto the player by asking them questions about what you'd done so far in the adventure and then directing you to different sections accordingly. And that enabled the book to have sections which were universal and only branched when something which depended on prior events turned up. So if they'd asked you in this hypothetical version of Nightmare Castle, do you have a key? The whole introduction to the castle could have been written exactly the same whether you had the key or not. And it really shows just how important thinking about structure and what have you is to a good adventure game book. Now, of course, anytime you ask the player to remember something, you're creating uncertainty, especially with younger readers. And I think Raid on Nightmare Castle feels as though it's aimed at a younger audience than fighting fantasy. So it's perhaps understandable that they didn't want to put extra demands on children who could be using all their concentration to simply read and comprehend the words on the page. Like because of the nature of game books, backtracking is, is hard. And if the text suddenly asks you a question and you aren't sure of the answer, there's the possibility that readers will simply give up. 
That said, this is clearly supposed to act as a very basic introduction to the role-playing hobby. And that's something that almost always requires a degree of bookkeeping, quite a significant degree of bookkeeping if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, for example, especially in the 80s. So arguably, you're doing a disservice to younger readers by not giving them the opportunity to get familiar with some of the key elements of the hobby you're trying to entice them into. Asking them to remember that they've got a key or work out the answer to a simple riddle, that doesn't feel like it's asking too much. And it opens up just a huge realm of possibilities in terms of design. So overall, this didn't overly impress me, although I did, as I say, enjoy subsequent playthroughs a little more. There's pleasure to be had in the multiplicity of different endings, and I really like that there's a whole bunch of good endings as well as many bad endings, and that's something you don't really get in fighting fantasy, where there's traditionally, at least, only one truly positive outcome. I think young readers would probably enjoy the talking animals more than I did, but at the same time, everything feels like a first draft. It's not been particularly carefully written, and information feels as though it's being delivered in the order that it occurred to the author, rather than in the order it makes sense for the plot. And that makes it a strangely impenetrable read, which I think ultimately would end up turning many kids off. Anyway, that's all for this bonus episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a welcome return to the Fighting Fantasy series, when I'll be playing through Caverns of the Snow Witch. I do hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, thanks for listening, stay safe, take care, and I'll see you soon.